You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Like I mentioned, this is the final Sunday that I get to serve as your pastor. And I'm Irish, so we don't like goodbyes. Um, or we really drag them out, one of the two. Uh, and uh, as tempting as that is to uh, moisten one's eye, uh, this is not goodbye. And we will, we will save that for a couple of weeks. Because uh, and, and in this series, and we're in the part 11 of a 15-part series, I told you so, uh, because it's tempting to go a lot of different directions the last time you get to speak to somebody. Uh, though literally that might not be true, but at least in this position it is. Um, and I, I struggled because this, this doesn't seem like an appropriate, fairly well message uh, at face value. But it may be one of the most helpful, practical, instructive, life-giving things I could ever say to you. Uh, So by faith believing that, uh, I want to lean into it. Because this psalm addresses, I mean, uh, a a menacing beast in our society. It's the emotion that has the the, the greatest capacity to... uh, Make your mouth go dry and your palms turn moist. And it's guilt. Uh, And if there's one issue that I find people battle with more than any other in their pilgrim journey, which this whole series of these Psalms of Ascent is about, is guilt and the corrosive results it creates But the joy is this psalm teaches us how to live guilt-free lives. Now, Psalm 130 is one of the seven penitential psalms about repentance and turning. But working through any of them, and this one in particular, is a challenge because there are some people in our world who feel guilty all of the time. No matter what the Bible says. You know any of these types? You know the people that feel guilty that they ate too much ice cream uh, last night. Because, or guilty because, well, things that, I mean, it gets imprinted. You know, maybe there was unreasonable expectations placed on them as a child. Or because somebody spoke very cruelly or harshly to them. Or did something diabolical to them and it gets twisted up inside. And they believe they were at fault for the, the thing that happened. Uh, 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 to them. And then on the other hand, there are those people in our world who rarely ever sense any kind of guilt whatsoever. And I'm not talking about, you know, narcissistic psychopaths, but those who kind of just breeze through life, uh, uh, never really wrestling at all with any sense of guilt because deep down inside, no matter what they do, they think they're always right. Everyone else is always wrong. Uh, especially when they're not, right? But to truly live guilt-free, we've got to get beyond this superficial understanding or feelings about guilt to, to understand what really lies beneath, what's underneath legitimate, real-deal guilt. And there's 
way intensive feelings in this psalm. But the psalm isn't really about feelings. This psalm is about what maybe like a criminologist would call forensic guilt. But actual guilt, whether a person feels it or not. Because this psalm is not describing someone feeling guilty. It's declaring someone's guilt and then expressing feelings that come from that guilt. In other words, to live guilt-free lives, we first of all got to identify true guilt. So under three headings this morning, this psalm lays out and it describes this guilt. It points then to God's forgiveness, which you've already celebrated in our confession and assurance this morning. And then it shows us, here it is, the, the dazzling, amazing, astounding hope that empowers anyone who believes to truly live guilt-free. So let's dive in. Okay, first of all, the guilt is, it's described to us. Out of the depths, actually the first Hebrew word in the construct is the word depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Stop. How many have ever been there? Right? I mean, you've been there. Whatever you're facing, it's like you're drowning. Am I right? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. These depths describe that sense of guilt. And the first two verses, they aren't describing some kind of social or communal guilt. It's just the kind of guilt that comes when you know somebody you want to impress disapproves of what you've said or done. No, this conviction is very personal. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Hear my voice, my pleas for mercy. These first two verses are not describing some kind of faux pas or misdemeanor traffic ticket. No, the, con- the conviction is deep. Out of the depths, I cry to you. This is the stuff that they know that they know down deep in their knower. And it's passionate. I cry to you, my pleas for mercy. These describe the kind of guilt that is not just personal and profound, but also personally and profoundly offensive to God himself. So the psalmist is convinced that she or he must cry to you, O Lord, that you, O Lord, must hear my voice, that your ears must be attentive to my pleas for mercy. These verses then describe guilt that is personal, not the feeling of guilt that comes when somebody makes you feel guilty, deep, not only feelings, though inevitably expressed with feeling, and specifically against God, not sinning against your true self or another human being. All of the penitential psalms singularly, similarly tell us that human guilt is guilt before Almighty God. Most famously in Psalm 51, where David has committed adultery and murder. I mean, if they ever made a, a real deal movie 
about it. I mean, it would get the hard R N C what 17 thing, right? It would just be grim. So he has sinned, obviously, against a lot of people, yet he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, against you, you only. Anytime something's you know, repeated, it's emphasized, underlined, highlighted. Against you, you only have I sinned. According to the Bible, then, while we certainly harm other people, sinful activity, and sin against them, and of course we're sinning against ourselves in that sense, ultimately, and exclusively, you and you only, our guilt is before God. Oh, isn't this cheery? Aren't you glad you're here for this final uh, sermon? Hang on, there's good news behind all of this. By describing this, this legitimate, spiritual, theological guilt... The psalm is looking in micro at the whole gospel story, which goes from original goodness and purity to fall in the garden and to the final redemption on the cross. These two verses indicate that true guilt has a larger gospel story of redemption in mind in a couple of very intriguing ways. First, the writer says, out of the depths, he cries. Depths, like I said, it's the first Hebrew word in the passage, for giving it emphasis. This psalm is sometimes called de profundis, meaning from the depths. The writer imagines is drowning, submerged under the water, and the Israelites, their, their culture, feared the sea. <clears throat> That's why, you know, on the Sea of Galilee, the storm that Jesus calms, why it blew them away. It, <clears throat> the, the culture, any time in the ancient literature, almost every time, not all, but almost every time, depths and ocean are mentioned. It's related to something diabolical and awful, and they feared it. It's always something terrible. Out of the depths <clears throat> may have its background in a particular depths out of which they were rescued, specifically the Red Sea through which they passed from bondage to freedom. They were in the depths and God rescued them, especially the deeps, Exodus 15, verse 8. To call from the depths is not a last despairing gasp of a drowning man. Instead, it's a confident call of a child of God believing that God has rescued them before from the waters in Egypt, so he too will rescue them now in this and every situation. Second, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It's a quotation from the dedication prayer of Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles. That prayer asks God to be attentive to the call of his people as they humble themselves, repent from their sins, and cry out to God. It asks that he would hear their prayers, forgive their sins, and heal their land. So this cry 
for God to be attentive to the pilgrim's call is not a shout in the dark without expecting to be heard. This cry is someone grasping on to a specific promise of God, 2 Chronicles 7, 15. Like a child saying to his father, you said if I called, you'd answer. These two references, while very subtle to us in the West, you've got to remember how deeply familiar they would have been to the original pilgrims, to the one who penned these words, and the pilgrims walking to Jerusalem. The story of the crossing of the Red Sea and the dedication of the temple and the glory of God coming to fill it, these, these things were imprinted on their heart. It, they lived in their memories, like the lyrics of the songs from your high school prom that you can just quote without thinking about. Out of the depths, by be attentive to my call, were written on their hearts and breathed without effort. Because they knew they were the source of their redemption from this hideous thing called guilt. So true conviction of guilt doesn't despair. Why? Because you know God will answer your prayer. That's why Paul differentiates firmly between godly grief and worldly grief in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief, quote, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Man, you counselor types, there's, that is just such, that's a dynamite, short passage of powerful, freedom-giving truth about the joy that comes from guilt-free living. I'm not talking about perfect living. I'm not talking about squeaky, clean, clenched fist, rigid, nervous, I don't want to mess up kind of living, but the deep sense of ease and poise that enters into a person. Because worldly grief, that just, just feeling sorrow, Paul goes on to write, says, produces death as it wallows in feeling sorrowful and self-condemning rather than repenting, rather than simply turning to God and admitting, confessing, and receiving his forgiveness. The psalm says, as the Israelites were freed from Egypt when they crossed the Red Sea, as God promised that he would hear his people, so you too can know that God will hear you if you cry out to him. Bear in mind, this conviction of guilt is not what I was trying to say. It's not puritanical. It's not manipulative. It's not merely psychological. It's a spiritual conviction of guilt. That conviction of guilt is, in the Bible's way of thinking, as objective a form of guilt as when somebody breaks the law of the land. This guilt is not only breaking the law, it's personally offending the one who made the law. Yet this conviction, out of the depths, is absolutely certain that God is attentive. 
So conviction of guilt is the, the logical, obvious prelim to redemption. Because second, looking at real guilt, second is God's forgiveness. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, my favorite word in the whole Bible, but, what's but mean? Forget what you heard, now listen. But, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Verse 3 asks a hypothetical question. If the Lord does not forgive people, if he should mark all of our iniquities, who'd be able to stand before God claiming to be righteous? The answer is, of course, no one. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus drives this even further. People may say they've not committed murder, but if they've hated They've done the very same thing. People may not have committed adultery, but if they've lusted, they've done the very same thing. Paul, a guy who said he you know, was perfect, never broke the law, but it was the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. That tripped him up and showed him just how short he'd fallen from the mark, Romans chapter 7. And earlier right, wrote saying, none is righteous, Romans 3. And Psalm 130, verse 3, makes it clear. If God does not forget, forgive, then we are screwed. Right? No one can stand. But, back to my favorite word, God does forgive. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That God is feared because he forgives is a, a really weird way to wrap up that sentence from our cultural standpoint. Because we would expect, you know, if it was a passage out of the Game of Thrones or, or whatever uh, popular, you know, construct of our mythology, it might be with you there's forgiveness that you might be worshipped and adored. Or the cynic inside of anyone might say, with you there is forgiveness Therefore, I can get a free pass and do whatever I want over and over again. But to conclude that you might be feared, what does that mean? It's an unexpected phrase, and it's a struggle to understand. And the struggle is really nothing new. Even in some of the ancient manuscripts themselves altered this passage. You'll find variations. Uh, one, one says that you might be seen, uh, or some simply snipping it out. With you there's forgiveness, clip. But what does it really mean? Why is it that with God there's forgiveness and therefore he is to be feared? It becomes clear if you'll take your pen and underline the word you, with you there is forgiveness. That is, with God there is forgiveness, therefore he is feared. The verse points to the lie 
of one of the pet ethics of our age, namely that if people are feeling guilty, they need to therefore forgive themselves. And this cultural approach to forgiveness removes God. Because you know, we're, we're in the midst of a, a massive cultural transformation in the Western world. In the world that we were familiar with as, as children, as recently as children uh, who are now in their 20s and 30s. The up, history up to that point, truth was out here. Truth was objective, revealed truth, the Word of God, etc. And inside here were feelings. Right? Now, the world has changed. Truth isn't out here objectively revealed. Truth is in here subjectively interpreted. Don't you tell me that your truth is better than my truth. I have to live my truth. I have to, and now what's inside is my truth, and out here are all of these socially constructed uh, 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 apparatus of feelings, these socially constructed feelings. Uh, apparatus, and the, the, the world now has to accommodate my truth. And the problem with this notion, which enters really subtly, but now is profoundly anchoring the central arguments that fill the news and the media all of the time, is that if, if truth is this sub, subjective construct inside, that truth somehow is beauty, and beauty is truth, right? You have to find your truth. You have to live your truth. Well, I'm glad that's true for you, but not for me. The problem with that, if, if truth is beauty and beauty is truth, pretty soon after a while it's beautiful and truthful to someone to murder people, to eliminate people, to police people's thoughts. To, and it's simply a convenient way for a society to come to terms with rejecting truth as something that we bring our feelings to and sub submit them rather than forcing society to accommodate my truth. If I feel, if the truth is thou shalt not commit adultery, but I feel like I want to commit adultery, what do you, I bring my feelings to the truth and I submit them to them and I say, okay, great, I'm not going to do that. As much as I feel like I want to, I'm not going to do that because it's wrong. But now instead, if my truth is do whatever, follow my heart and do whatever I feel, and, and it, you know, God bless Walt Disney and the Disney world, but, but following your heart has profound dangers as a society. Because the scripture says, the heart is deceptively wicked, who can fathom it? And if you don't believe me, how many of you are parents? See me? Okay. How many had a parent? Okay, good. How many are tired of me ever asking you to raise your hand and are rejoicing secretly that this, passage, this chapter is over? Okay. <clears throat> Here's the problem. You see, if you think this is a legitimate place to operate from, I provide your children as evidence, uh, you know, A, in the trial. Do you have to teach your children how to be Wicked, <laughs> evil, naughty, 
No, it comes factory installed. You do not have to teach them. It just happens. You have to teach them instead what? To be good, to mind their manners, to be polite, to share. You don't have to teach a kid to be selfish. Right? Although, isn't it funny? They're usually much more generous before they get the whole idea of personal possessions. You know, here, yes, play my toys. But then, what? You have two kids in the room and a toy's in the middle. And they can be doing something else, but as soon as the kid moves to the toy in the middle, what happens? World War III, right? Where did that come from? If what I'm talking about is simply another social construct, that argument wouldn't hold any water. But enough about arguing and illustrating. <clears throat> Why is it then that the Scripture reveals in God there's forgiveness and therefore is to be feared. Underlying that word, you, the objective truth, you. With you there's forgiveness. This verse points to that lie that if we're, if we're feeling guilty, we simply need to forget ourselves, like I already mentioned, and this is culture's way of removing God. If you're saying that when you've sinned, and you've sinned against yourself and not God. Back to Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned. Instead, we rewrite it as against me, only me, only my true self have I sinned. When someone says, I cannot forgive myself, then in this whole stream of thinking, what, what they're saying is I still feel guilty. If they mean what they say, they mean that they are their own God. What they're saying is if we're saying we have to forgive ourselves is that I am God and my standards are higher than anyone else's. I get to decide who's forgiven and who's not. Now for the believer who struggles with this and you, you, you say, there is God's forgiveness, but I, I just can't forgive myself. There's a distortion inside, and you've, you're simply believing that your standards are higher than God's standards, and somehow you can earn your own salvation by satisfying your standards, not God's. And that's a dangerous trap that the evil one wants you to stay. Instead, with you, there is forgiveness. Only when we see that we need the forgiveness of God, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit, who points to the Father, that through the Son is the God who forgives. The God who forgives the abuser, the alcoholic, the workaholic, the adulterer, the liar, the thief, the angry, the covetous, the Pharisee, the prostitute, and the politician. Run! To him when they believe and accept his forgiveness, not meriting their own forgiveness, the whole game changes. Suddenly, God is no taskmaster, tyrant in the sky. He's the one who will do anything for you, including forgive you. Why? 
because you're His. All ways. Every part of you. Every aspect of your life. And always means with forgiveness. What happened then? What happens now? And always available. This meets the foundational need of each and every soul. Because when we find ourselves dead in sin, we're living lives. We're not living. We're dead in our sin. Why? Because we're regretting the past or we're fearing the future, and it keeps us from being present right now. You've been around people like that. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. When you're around someone who's not present, right? Locked up in regret or fear. Forgiveness is with God and Him alone, and therefore we fear Him because, it, because in Him, third, is what we all need in order to not be locked up then and fearing tomorrow. A four-letter word, hope. Listen to the last three verses. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Yep, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his, our, iniquities. Now he says, I wait for the Lord. And that's surprising because after with you there is forgiveness, you would expect, you would expect the offer of forgiveness. Instead, the psalmist pivots from God being the one who forgives to a future longing for God's Redemption and his ultimate redemption of everything, yes, including me and whatever's got me dogged with guilt right now. The strength of his waiting is confirmed with the words, my soul waits. The soul, the deepest part of the you that makes you you. And though waiting is always hard, Am I the only guy whose biggest hang-up with God is that he is too slow? No. We don't like waiting. Waiting sucks. Our whole culture is anti-waiting. We, we won't do it. While it's hard, it's far from hopeless. And in his word, I hope. This testifies guys and gals, to a key spiritual key, a key key, the key to spiritual health, namely, deliberately and decisively placing our hope in God's word, in God's promise. He repeats, my soul waits for the Lord. Man, he's anticipating. To him, it's more than watchman for the morning. It's like a night guard in a scary place sweating it out until daylight comes.
comes, revealing the ground before them, revealing any hiding spots of bad guys. Repeating, remember, means is always for emphasis, more than watchman for the morning. So he's yearning. He's wanting, wants deep in his wanter. And then going to the depths and finding there in the deepest, darkest place, hope. And what happens? He yells it to God's people. Because people need hope. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Because this hope can't stay his alone. Like every legit encounter with God, he's shouting it from his rooftops. He is posting it. He is tweeting it. He is whatever you do. Because he wants everyone to know the best news ever, that hoping in God is not pointless. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Hope in God, because his hope is not unfaithful or flimsy, but reliable, consistent, steadfast. Hope in God, because his redemption is not just adequate, but abundant, bountiful, plentiful. God's steadfast love and plentiful redemption means that Israel can be certain that you can be certain God will redeem them. God will redeem you from all their sins, from all your sins, not just the minor, polite, acceptable stuff, but the private, shameful, serious stuff. And he will redeem Israel. He will redeem you from all their, all your iniquities did and will, full stop. And then the psalm ends with hope and waiting. It concludes this way because the author of the psalm has not yet found this assurance of their forgiveness. Perhaps he knows that with God there is forgiveness, but he's not yet applied that forgiveness his or her own life. Maybe they're waiting to feel forgiven. To know somehow more assuredly that really have been forgiven. Not just the abstract notion of with God there is forgiveness. Maybe. But this last point part of the psalm, it doesn't read like someone who's desperate out of a lack of assurance. It reads more like someone who's deeply confident, knows that God's steadfast love, and he speaks the Hebrew word for covenant, steadfast love, hesed, the everlasting love that God has for anyone who will trust him. What's more, he's mulling over his hope so that he can now plead with other people to hope just like he does. A person stuck in the vicious cycle of not feeling assured 
is not going to share their experience with others. He's waiting and hoping and broadcasting because he's been forgiven whether he feels it or not. And therefore understands that feelings generally follow actions or thoughts. You see, guilt is really all about the past. Guilt is about what you did or didn't do, what you said or didn't say. Guilt, by its very nature, looks back at the past with regret. And if you know someone who is stuck in the past or if you feel like you're stuck in the past, typically the handcuffs holding them in the past is this vicious thing called guilt. And, of course, some, some people like to you know, reminisce just out of nostalgic state, but sometimes people long for the past because they feel that their life, since whatever occurred, since then is now disappointing. And they're in the depths. They're caught in the trap, the past and the guilt, and a horrible cycle. Like a criminal who inexorably and inevitably returns to the scene of the crime, guilt keeps us going over and over in our mind those things we feel guilty about from the depths, drowning, treading water, desperate. But once you know God's forgiveness, you have hope. Your foot finds a rock. You're not going to drown. And you shout out to the other people, treading water with you. With him is plentiful redemption. The future is no longer menacing and hopeless. And you cry, over here, swim to the rock. Storm clouds can still gather. Rain can, and night can fall. But you now know that you know down deep in your knower. And you'll tell anyone who'll listen that the future is not dark, but bright. God is bringing his redemption. Israel can be confident. And so can you. From Egypt to exile on the cross, that your redemption and your worst enemy's redemption is both once and for all, new again each and every moment. You can live free from guilt forever, according to this psalm, when you place your trust in the Redeemer. And when you did, that Redeemer stands as a shield against your guilt and anyone who would accuse you of it. As Paul reminded us in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness forever for you. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.